I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion. And welcome to Unscripted. Today, she calls herself a homemaker, a philanthropist, a consultant. But who exactly is Kelly Knightcraft, the new U.S. ambassador to the U.N.? This is the second episode of Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. Stephanie, what are the major hotspots right now? All eyes are on Kashmir after India changed part of its constitution and the status of the region. There are also the growing tensions between the U.S. and Iran and Russia's reported attack of U.N. medical facilities in Syria. And today, we'll talk about the new U.S. ambassador who will handle all of these files at the U.N. Her name is Kelly Knightcraft. Senators in the chamber wishing to vote or change their vote. If not, the yeas are 57, the nays are 33. The motion is agreed to. The clerk will report the nomination. Kelly Kraft of Kentucky to be the ambassador of the United States of America and the Security Council of the United Nations. Kraft was confirmed as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. by the U.S. Senate this summer, and she's expected to start sometime in the next few weeks. At the fortress-like U.S.-U.N. mission on First Avenue, her physical or digital desk is likely already brimming with material she needs to learn. The office she's taking over has been vacant for nearly eight months since the previous ambassador, Nikki Haley, left at the end of last year. The deputy representative, Jonathan Cohen, a career diplomat from the State Department, took over in the meantime. But it's still one of the longest gaps in the history of U.S.-U.N., In order to get a sense of how Kraft will fit into the office, it's going to be helpful to compare her with her predecessor, Nikki Haley. Stephanie, what stands out? One thing is that Kraft, contrary to Haley, had a little political experience before being nominated and confirmed, but she has been a longtime Republican donor. Her only political experience was her posting as ambassador to Canada since 2017. When Haley was nominated to the U.N., she had been governor of South Carolina for six years and a state lawmaker since 2005. Although she did not have prior international affairs experience, Haley was said to be pretty dedicated to her job. For the most part, she showed loyalty to President Trump and his policies, which she implemented and defended fiercely at the U.N., And a top priority for this administration has been defending Israel at the UN. Will Kraft show the same level of dedication on that issue? In her confirmation hearing, Kraft said she plans to protect and defend Israel at the UN. She also said she believes that the country is constantly bullied by other UN members. The Israeli ambassador to the UN, Danny Dannon, was very prompt in congratulating Kraft after she was confirmed. Like we did with Haley, Pass Blue has been following Kraft closely since her nomination and will continue to during her time at the UN. Our resident Kelly Knight Kraft expert at Pass Blue is columnist Erwin Arieff. He's investigated Kraft's financial records, associates, and her time as the U.S. ambassador to Canada. Stephanie sat down with him to get the inside scoop on not only her past, but what we can expect from Kraft as U.N. ambassador. I am with Erwin Arieff. He's a veteran journalist who reported for Reuters for 23 years. He was based in Washington, Paris, and New York, where he covered the United Nations for seven years. He retired from daily journalism in 2007, and he is now a contributor at Pass Blue. 
He was based at the UN during some crucial years in American history between 2000 and 2007. He has covered the aftermath of 9-11 and the George W. Bush administration's 2003 Iraq war and its aftermath. Erwin, over the time you spent as a UN correspondent, you've seen many ambassadors taking on this very important and difficult job representing Washington on the international stage. One of them is a name that will ring a bell to many listeners, John Bolton. He was nominated to the UN by George W. Bush, but was never confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Erwin, what can his time as U.S. ambassador in 2005 and 2006 tell us about this administration's view of the United Nations as an institution? Well, John Bolton was presumably chosen by George W. Bush because Bolton has a particularly dim view of the United Nations. Its only purpose is to help the United States carry out its own foreign policy. And the Trump administration is exactly the same. So in naming Kelly Kraft, Trump is really just along that same theme. He's chosen someone who is inexperienced, has made a mark in the United States for the contributions to political campaigns for prominent Republicans across the country that she and her husband, coal magnate named Joseph Kraft III, who is also now given an even more prominence in the Trump administration. He and his wife gave $2 million in cash to Donald Trump and Kraft, in return, has been able to lead the administration's campaign to revive coal as a fuel of preference in the United States, despite its abysmal environmental record and its health threat. So it's it's a package deal that they've gotten. And maybe before getting into Kelly Kraft, uh, for our listeners who might not follow the day-to-day of the UN, uh, can you tell me how prestigious in the world of diplomacy is uh, it is to be nominated as a UN ambassador? Yes, well, generally around the world, the UN ambassador for any country is the second most prestigious diplomat in the government. There's a foreign minister and there's the UN ambassador. It's the top of the top of the di- diplomatic world. Haley resigned in October, and the post has been vacant for more than seven months now. Is this a normal period of time? This is very strange, I think, right now, because there's so much focus on foreign conflict and foreign intrigue and foreign trade in the Trump administration. This is a time that's very fraught in the international arena, and to have that post empty now is bizarre. And I think the most unusual thing about it is that no one really understood why Heather Nauert withdrew, but she was considered to be maybe nominally qualified in the foreign policy world, even though she might not have been a top official. She was a highly visible figure who came from the State Department. But it it is extremely unusual that they have waited so long to get Kelly Kraft into position as the UN ambassador because she doesn't have any of the usual attributes, which would be to have an extensive diplomatic background, to have strong knowledge of how the U.S. government works in the U.S. and around the world. In her confirmation hearing, she and one of her benefactors, Mitch McConnell, both cited her experience 
as an alternate delegate to a general assembly session, which was purely fluff. It was not a substantive job at all, but an honorary job. But because she, her resume is so blank, she had to cite that. So as soon as Trump started talking about Kelly Craft uh, to become UN ambassador, you looked at her resume and you started uh, digging into, you know, what she has done before being an ambassador to Canada. So can you tell me a little bit about what you found? You know, who was she before being uh, posted in Canada? Before becoming ambassador to Canada, she was notable mainly as a, and her husband, Joseph Kraft III, the coal billionaire, the two of them together became a really big power couple in Kentucky and in Republican circles. They were able to put money into a number of Republican campaigns at every level, almost from like dog catcher to senator and president. Her husband has the most political interest in making sure that coal is succeeding in the United States. But Kelly signed a lot of the checks And you look in the Federal Election Commission records on the contribution she gave, and she identified herself in three different ways over the last couple of years. She signed the forms sometimes as a homemaker, sometimes as a consultant because she had a consulting business, and sometimes as a philanthropist. And it's true, she gave a lot of money to the University of Kentucky, and she was on the board of trustees a few years back. She also was a, a big donor to the Salvation Army, but not a lot of other charity work. What about her time in Canada? Well, from the day she arrived on the spot, she had a news conference. I believe on the first day that she arrived in Canada, she said, I believe in the science on both sides. And everyone in Canada thought that was hilarious. In Kelly's confirmation hearings, There was a note from uh, the top Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Senator Menendez, who pointed out that she had brought her husband along to four business meetings with American officials or Canadian officials from the energy world. When Ambassador Kraft needed information about U.S. environmental projects, she asked her husband to connect her to former EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, When the EPA sent the requested information to the ambassador, they included her spouse on the response. In addition to official calendars, Mr. Kraft participated in at least four meetings with U.S. or Canadian government energy and environmental officials. Uh, so Kenny Nightcraft did sign an agreement oh, with yeah. the State Department regarding conflict of interest. The agreement that Kelly Nightcraft signed was very general and very vague. And she seemed to indicate during her Senate confirmation hearing that she was not cowed by this agreement. She said that the agreement, as she read it, limited her ability only to participate in meetings at the UN that might affect the value of her and her husband's coal holdings. She said it had not yet been determined, as she understood, whether that prohibition or that restriction would also apply to her husband and her holdings in fossil fuels. So it may very well be that she's going to draw a very fine line. What else stood out from her confirmation hearing on her time in Canada? I think there was some controversy around the actual amount of time <laughs> that she spent there. Yes, there was. Uh, Mitch McConnell, 
her longtime friend and a friend of her husband described her as a very impressive individual. But Menendez said she was unfit to serve. He said he had substantial doubts about her ability to serve and her qualifications to serve because of three things. She had very little diplomatic experience, that she was unable to sort out her personal life from her, her and her husband's financial life. And she spent so much time away from Ottawa during her time as ambassador that Senator Menendez concluded that she had been an absentee ambassador. She held the ambassadorship for 21 months. She had been away from her post for about half the time that she was ambassador. And she had made 43 trips either to her home in Kentucky or to her husband's home in Oklahoma. And Senator Cruz, a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, tried to cover up for this. Oh, I imagine that these were trips that you took inside of Canada. It's not fair to accuse you of being derelict in your duty, but those numbers about her absences had nothing to do with travel inside of Canada. It was all travel outside of Canada. Another thing that the ambassador said was that she had been busy at work on the trade agreement, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which includes Canada and Mexico as well as the United States. And Menendez said, actually, the State Department says you attended one of five negotiating sessions. And she said, oh, don't forget, I spent a lot of time in Washington on discussions. Yeah, I only attended one round of talks, but there was a lot of discussion going on. Um, so I assume that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee also asked questions about foreign relations. How did she do on questions regarding foreign relations of the United States? She was asked by all the members some very, very, very detailed questions about U.S. policy when asked to talk about the most important, what she thought were the most important crises facing the United States and facing the United Nations. She was fudging a lot. I see pressing issues as any issue that involves innocent people. I think it's very important that who would have ever thought that today we have so many crises in Venezuela, in Yemen, in Syria, and it's so important that we look after our human rights <laughs> issues because then that in turn is going to be humanitarian issues. Well, I appreciate your response in terms of humanitarian issues, and I would share those with you, but um, I would expect someone who's the nominee for, to be the UN ambassador in response to that question to talk about, for example, uh, the challenges of North Korea aggression and nuclear proliferation, uh, the challenges in Libya, uh, destabilized Libya, the challenges of China's growing influence and ongoing threats from Iran, the challenges of Venezuela. Those are minimally some of the hot spots in the world right now. She was asked at one point whether she favored the two-state solution in the Middle East, which is, should there be a separate state for Palestinians? She said that she had had no participation in the administration's development of a Middle East policy and that she had no view. And the most important problem, that she, as she saw it in the Middle East, was that Israel was not getting the respect it deserves from the United Nations and it should end its bias. So she basically echoed what the Trump administration has been saying at the UN. 
President Trump's administration has taken actions on behalf of Israel, but has barely mentioned the Palestinians in public, but he has instructed his administration to cut their foreign aid pretty severely. Other Trump nominees were very controversial, such as Andrew Bramberg and Robert Destro. And in these cases, uh, the Democrats on the committee were actually able to stall their nominations. In the case of Kelly Craft, they did not. So does it mean that they did not agree with her nomination, but that she was not that controversial in the end? Well, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the Senate are both controlled by Republican senators. The view was that she was a fairly harmless official. Many of Trump's nominees have been controversial because of opinions that they held on really important issues that were not in the mainstream or very unusual, or they had incredible conflicts in their past. And Ambassador Kraft was not like that. She didn't enunciate policy positions that were scary or gave alarm to the members of the Senate. And I think that her service will probably follow along her service as ambassador to Canada. She is not going to be someone who's going to make world headlines denouncing a particular country or a particular rebel movement or a particular war. She is going to be a friendly, personable person who enjoys good relationships with ambassadors. I would imagine she will probably throw a lot of really good reception. And she will not be a person who will get into huge, crucial arguments with Trump. I think that's doubly important because you have two really pushy men who are running Trump's foreign policy apparatus right now. You have Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State and John Bolton as National Security Advisor. And Kelly Kraft is probably not going to compete with them or even try to compete with them because she doesn't seem to be that kind of personality who is driven by policy. It appears that she just wants to be a helpful person to the administration. And the first moment that we will be able to witness her work at the UN will be a big one because the UN General Assembly is going to start in a few weeks and she should be on Trump's side for this event. What are you expecting? Well, if this is not Trump's first visit to the UN. He was much more uh, a focus of everyone's attention when he came the first time after becoming president back in 2017. This time... Trump will come, and she will stand, as you say, by his side, loyally and faithfully, and smile a lot and shake hands. She will rely a lot on the White House. She will rely a lot on the State Department back in Washington, on her own staff in New York, which is a super good staff that has, you know, many of whom have long, long, long experiences, and our foreign service veterans who've made a lifetime commitment to pursuing foreign policy for the U.S. government. So she will have a lot of th uh, people to fall back on. It seems likely that her entire tenure as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations will be light on policy because she 
is light on policy. Everything she's conveyed to date is that she wants to be behind Trump supporting his work, and she doesn't have a big agenda. Well, as we haven't seen that much of uh, Kelly Nightcraft in Canada, it will for sure be interesting to see what she's going to do with the UN. Uh, and Erwin, I am sure that you will follow this very closely. It will be a really interesting couple of months because we don't really know anything about what her style is going to be apart from these kind of hints and signals that she created while in Canada. So we, w we will want to know if she's going to change in some important way and people will be watching her like a hawk. She also has got to know that there will be an enormous interest in whether she pushes for policies that help coal or uh, would damage the environment or would challenge the international movements underway right now to increase the surveillance of environment and keep uh, the, the fight against climate change on a high plane. It's possible that she will turn into an environmentalist, but it doesn't seem likely given her background and her husband. Well, we will follow your coverage of Kelly Nightcraft very closely. Erwin, thank you so much for being with us today. This episode was produced by me, Casey Candela, with help from Brianna Lyman and reported by Stephanie Filion for Pass Blue, an independent, women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day -day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find your podcast. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.